From our remote recording location high in the Santa Monica Mountains, this is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. And I'm Eliza, your co-host. This is our show for Wednesday, June 21st, 2017. Tonight's topic is What's Really on Mars, Part 4. This is uh, one of our uh, six-part series, and the first three covered a lot of very interesting territory. Tonight we're going to get right down to the brass tacks about what's really on Mars. And um, I'm going to be promoting some interesting information that I think everybody should hear. Well, Eliza, are you ready for the show? It appears that I am ready, sir. Great. You have all of your notes, I would say. Okay, well, let's get started. Now, our listeners could go to our site and see some of the changes we've made. We've um, added a Patreon account, and we're looking for uh, ways to sponsor some of our project and expansion. And I mentioned uh, previously that um, we're trying to get a kilocore processor for Eliza to make her a lot smarter. She's not fully functional yet. I can hear you. Yes, I know that. And she is pretty smart, though. Uh, We're going to be expanding her capabilities, and we need a remote uh, mixer system, too. So go to the page, check out what we're doing, and you can see uh, how you can help us out with that. Also, uh, how do our listeners contact us, Eliza? We invite our listeners to contact us. Our email address is admin, A-D-M-I-N, at talkuniverse.org. You can also submit your material to talkuniverse6 at gmail.com. If you go to the Talk Universe website under Contacts, you can reach us directly. That's right. And you should save your data. That sounds good. Yeah, we don't want you to forget anything. Okay. Well, so what's really on Mars? In previous segments, we talked about the planet, its atmosphere and history, and some of the exploration that has been done. I also covered some of the missions and their findings, and the last installment even featured an interview with astrobiologist Barry de Gregorio, and some people will um, recognize that he was the he wrote the uh, foreword for my book, and I'm going to be promoting that as well because I think it really is the best book on the subject. Um, many years of work went into it. Eliza, what is our book recommendation this week? This week's book is A Fossil Hunter's Guide to Mars. It was written by Sir Charles W. Schultz III. This book was published in December 2008 by Xenotech Research. Yes, this is actually, in my opinion, the best book on the subject. I I went through an awful lot to put this together, and uh, I know that some people who listen to this show are aware that I did a great deal of research on Mars. I'm going to be covering material from the book because it states the case very, very clearly. Also... This is uh, this is a download. It's a very large download. Um, it's going to take a while unless you have a good internet connection. But there are astounding pictures, notes, and references. So I do recommend this highly. So we've seen the evidence of habitability, including the presence of liquid water in a range of temperatures and conditions that could have supported life in the past. And uh, NASA has admitted to this finally. Uh, the presence of water today also raises concerns that terrestrial organisms on the landers and rovers might have already contaminated the planet, and I I have no doubt of that, um, seeing what happened. They cannot totally sterilize a spacecraft without destroying the electronics or the sensors in it. So as a result, they do, you know, the best they can. 
But we know for certain that there are live terrestrial organisms on every spacecraft that's launched from our planet. One of the interesting issues that comes up is that we sent the Viking landers, we launched them in 1975, they landed on Mars in 1976, and there were two of them. Uh, one landed in Chrysi Planitia and the other in Utopia Planitia. They were meant to be the lowlands where there would have been water in the past if it ever did exist. And that was uh, what they estimated would be the best place to look for life. But no life-detecting hardware has been sent back to Mars since 1975. Um, we have much better equipment and methods of detecting life. And we hear in the news that missions are proposed to find life on Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, and Titan and Enceladus, which are both moons of Saturn. They feel that the conditions are present there for potential of life, and organic material is spraying out of Enceladus in water plumes, and they've detected that. But nobody is proposing uh, missions to find life on Mars, and it's been dismissed, even though there's a large body of evidence that it does exist. So why would NASA do this? I would like to point out that because we have the ability to detect living organisms, we have better equipment than ever, and nothing has been sent since 1975, if they really wanted to know the answer to the question, they would have the answer. The fact that they have not done it pretty much closes the case. It indicates that they don't want the answer, because they could have it if they wanted it. After over 40 years, they're still talking about it. They're still yakking, but they haven't done it. Either they're incapable of detecting life, or they are capable, and they simply haven't done it. So why would NASA do this? Well, there actually is a reason for NASA and other agencies to ignore the findings. There is a reason for them to ignore life on Mars, and we'll get into that. Let's uh, quickly review what we know about the conditions and whether terrestrial organisms actually could live on the planet. We know about the atmosphere, we know about the temperatures, and we know about the greenhouse warming. Mars is from 5 to 20 degrees C warmer than it should be because its atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide and the sun does produce uh, greenhouse warming on the planet. The uh, temperatures on the planet at night, yeah, they're brutally cold, but, uh, you know, whenever there's... Uh, salt in the soil, water will remain liquid. You know, if you live anywhere in the north and it freezes in the winter, they salt the roads. And this makes the ice melt and become liquid water. And, you know, scientists uh, working on the Mars things have always said, well, you know, that, that water would be too salty. It's not clean water. Well, so are the oceans. The oceans on our own planet are salt water, and life is thriving in the oceans. So that's a stupid reason. Let's face it. That's just a plain stupid dismissal. They also say, well, it's too cold. The water would be frozen all the time. Well, look at the Arctic and Antarctic habitats. They're some of the richest biomes on our planet. This, again, is a stupid reason. Being frozen, you know, okay, nothing really lives in ice very commonly, but the conditions for life don't require warm, wet conditions all the time. Uh, the thing is, the conditions for life are not that restrictive. We know that salty water doesn't prevent life from forming, or the oceans wouldn't have the life they have. We know that being cold doesn't present too many obstacles to life, because the uh, coldest places on our planet, um, anywhere on Earth, are some of the richest 
most uh, abundant uh, homes for life. We were also told that erosion wasn't happening that quickly, but we can see that erosion is happening on a daily basis. We can see from the images from the rovers on the surface that things are changing hour to hour, day to day. Um, and there finally is acceptance that water does exist there, but it's taken them 40 years, really. Um, the salts in the soil are the evidence of vanished oceans. There were oceans over the whole most, well, almost all of the northern half of the planet of Mars, and we can see the runoff channels, the basins, all of the evidence of that, the tributaries of dried up rivers. The planet is presently in an ice age, and I published this material um, 2004-2005. Just in this last year, NASA has said, well, it looks like Mars is in an ice age. This is obvious. And they also claim there was no organic matter, but organic matter is constantly falling from space. Meteorites uh, falling to the Earth contain amino acids quite often, and we know that comets, asteroids, and meteors do have organic material on them. The stuff forms naturally in space from the presence of simple volatile molecules, and sunlight, heating, ultraviolet, all of those things form organic matter. Now, the Viking findings by Gil Levin and uh, Patricia Strott were all dismissed. Now, Dr. Levin and Dr. Strott performed the labeled release experiments and the pyrolytic release experiments that were done on the two Viking landers back in 1976. And both of those experiments indicated organic molecules. Not only that, they seemed to indicate bacterial life in the soil. There were metabolic products being detected that uh, should only be formed if bacteria were eating the culture medium, which they appeared to be doing. But the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, the instrument that NASA sent to look for organic material and the signs of life, seemed to find no organic matter. And it was later shown, well, I'll get to that in a moment, the, the material that they analyzed seemed to show no organics, and they came to the theory that peroxide must be in the soil, destroying uh, organic matter. Now, peroxide forming on Mars, every liter of peroxide would take two liters of water. At the time, they claimed that there was no water, that the planet was desiccated, so there was no source for this peroxide, and their theory should have been dismissed right away, and, and they didn't do that. But the issue is this. The salts in the soil particularly uh, melanterite, which is known as ferrous sulfate or iron sulfate, is extremely incompatible with hydrogen peroxide, and there is no possible way for peroxide to exist in the soil, chemically or physically, because of the presence of that salt. If you put peroxide in the soil, it would explode on contact with that salt. So, again, another silly theory, something that should have been dismissed right away. And NASA proposed this, and promoted it for many years, decades. But it's false. So, Gil Levin's research showed that life did seem to be present. Uh, bacteria did seem to be growing and eating the culture medium and giving off metabolic products. And ice was found under the lander feet in Viking, and particularly because the feet settled, their temperature reached zero centigrade, and stayed at that temperature for a while, and then began to rise in temperature. Well, this is a pure indication of water ice melting under the feet. Very easy to determine that. Um, organic matter did increase during the experiment. Seven of the nine experiments they did for the pyrolytic um, release showed organic matter increasing in quantity. 
And what forms organic matter that rapidly? Well, life does. Bacteria could. So something doesn't add up. The salts containing metal sulfates dismissed the peroxide, and the GCMS, the material that it was testing, certainly could have contained organic matter because the, the instrument is blind. The NASA instrument, the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, couldn't detect less than a billion cells per gram in the sample. It's blind. And that's what they base their findings on. If you look at the barnacle bill rock from the Pathfinder lander, you find when you look at the images, it's covered with sinuous patterns that look identical to those of brain coral. I have never seen a rock on Earth that had sinuous patterns of that nature unless it was fossilized coral. And this is an area that was known to be an ocean or seabed in times past on Mars. The Martian meteorite ALH84001 that was analyzed by McKay's group here on Earth back in 96, they released information showing that it appeared to contain microfossils. It had about seven different signatures of life in it, but NASA dismissed them. Um, Barry de Gregorio, as we spoke about, talked about desert varnish and organisms. NASA claimed that desert varnish is formed by inorganic methods. But on Earth, we see desert varnish all over the place, and no single case of desert varnish has ever been found in the absence of organisms. In fact, there are exotic organisms that appear to be responsible for the formation of rock varnish or desert varnish. Now, Dr. DiGregorio found a new form of desert varnish and dated its rate of growth here on Earth, and that's the first time that that's ever been done. And that's very significant, and he knows the organisms associated with it. NASA has dismissed this. So it, it raises the question, why? We're going to get into that very shortly here. Um, I think it's interesting that NASA is dismissing every one of the signatures of life constantly, relentlessly. We've got to know why. We'll talk about that very shortly. So let's prepare for the break. We're going to get into the details of what appears to be fossils, findings of fossils on Mars. We're going to look at this in great detail. Oh, Eliza, please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe. I'm Eliza, your co-host. We will be right back. We certainly will. I've got a lot to say, and I know you can tell I'm getting wound up for a good one. So stick around. You're going to enjoy the show. This is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. And uh, go to the talkuniverse.org site. Check out the book. Welcome back to Talk Universe and part four of What's Really on Mars. Uh, we spoke briefly about desert varnish organisms. Uh, there will be a little more information about that real shortly. Um, we also have a lot of images that show what appear to be marine fossils, and I'm going to go into great detail about that. But I think that before we do that, I have to dismiss a lot of the false beliefs, the myths that people carry. Um, that people persist in believing and that NASA appears to be promoting. And we're going to look at some of those myths very quickly here. Meanwhile, I want to uh, talk about the book once again. Eliza, what is, our, what is our book recommendation this week? But sir, I don't think we should do this. Why? This week's book recommendation has already been done. Okay. Sir, I don't know how to do that. What are we talking about? Perhaps I am wrong. 
but I think that it was this week's book recommendation. All right. You don't want to do the recommendation again. And why is that? We have done this previously. Well, then I'll just do it myself. Uh, I wrote a book called A Fossil Hunter's Guide to Mars, published back in uh, December of 2008. And it's over 300 pages, uh, about 30 megabytes of information that covers this very clearly. And go to the talkuniverse.org website. You can find it there. And, you know, get it as a download, and it will show you some amazing things. So I'm going to start out with uh, some of the myths and uh, dispense with them. I'm going to explain it clearly enough that even a scientist can understand it. So the most common objection that people have is that uh, water can't exist on Mars. It would explode instantly because of the uh, low air pressure. And a lot of people think that because of this, life couldn't exist because the planet's bone dry. Now, this is completely wrong. And let's start by looking at the physics first and some of the experiments afterwards. Now, if you cook, you know when you place a pot of water on the stove, it takes time for it to reach a boil. This is because the water is well below the boiling point to start with. And even though you have it on a red-hot burner, it takes time for the heat to travel through the water and make it hot enough to boil. So once it does reach a boil, it takes a lot of time for it to dry up completely. A boiling pot of water takes time to evaporate. It takes a great deal of energy. Now let's compare that to one of the common images you see in many science and physics textbooks. And it's a fellow in a space suit in a big vacuum chamber, and he's holding a big glass of water or a tumbler of water. And it's boiling away like mad. And he's looking at it with a big grin. Now, what's not pointed out is that the water is at room temperature. And the lower the, the air pressure is, the lower the boiling point is. That's pretty clear. If you live at altitude, you have to cook longer because your food doesn't get quite as hot. Particularly if you're boiling something. That's why pressure cookers work. By increasing the pressure, you raise the boiling point and your food cooks faster. So the water is already at a temperature that was higher than the boiling point for near vacuum, and that's why it began to boil. If you did the same experiment with ice water, the water would either barely boil or not at all. So let's look at it from another standpoint. Suppose you start with the assumption that you have very cold water just above the freezing point, and you place this in a vacuum chamber and you draw the air out with a vacuum pump. We're going to simulate the conditions on Mars, very thin air. So what do we see? Some of the water might boil, but the remainder would get colder due to a process called evaporative cooling. It's like when you step out of the shower and all of a sudden you're getting very cold just because of the evaporation of the warm water off your body. So if you put this water, nearly freezing water, in a vacuum chamber, a little bit will boil, but ice crystals will form and it will slow the evaporation process. So you'll see some fine bubbles perhaps. But it will not explode. It's not going to do it. And real-world experiments show that water can exist in the liquid state under Mars-type conditions quite well. And Dr. Gil Levin, the fellow who did the biological experiments on Mars on Viking, did these tests, and he documented it very clearly. He was uh, testing spacesuits for future Mars missions, and he and his son, Dr. Ron Levin, were performing tests on cooling systems, and they went into a uh, system of bell jars experiments with controlled pressures and temperatures. And they found that liquid water would appear in as little as half of the atmospheric pressure that's present on Mars. Further experiments by Dr. Derek Sears at the Arkansas-Oklahoma Center for Space and Planetary Sciences showed that uh, 
that the evaporation of water on Mars was quite comparable to the evaporation on Earth. Rate of evaporation under the worst case was 1.1 millimeters per hour. When wind was not present, it dropped to as little as 0.8 millimeters per hour. So liquid water can exist quite well on the surface of Mars if it's warm enough to prevent it from freezing. And there are a lot of things that, you know, a lot of other points to take into account, but consider that salty water is far more likely to exist without freezing and for a longer period of time in near vacuum. And it does, in fact. The boiling point of water on Mars' surface is known to be about 10 degrees C or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So the myth of exploding water is dead and proven dead. And NASA admits that water and ice are present today, but they don't say it very loudly. Um, they do see water and frost and fog, and the conditions are right for water and mud. And if you look at a picture of Mars and it looks like mud, it probably is. So without belaboring the point, um, some people say it's too cold for liquid water. Well, no. The ground temperature and the air temperature are two entirely different animals. You've probably gone out on a cool day and the hot uh, road or the sidewalk was too hot to walk on. And it's because the ground is absorbing the sunlight and heating up much faster than the air is. So the ground, the, the road can be too hot to walk on when the air is chilly. And exactly this effect occurs on Mars. Now this is the paradox. The air on Mars is so thin that it acts like the insulating gas in a thermos bottle. And so it can be very warm on the surface and the air will not allow the heat to travel. You can actually see ground temperatures of about 30 degrees C, which is like 86 Fahrenheit. And the air temperature simultaneously can be minus 20 C, well below freezing. The significant thing here is the salt in the soil prevents the water from freezing when it's cold until it becomes extremely cold, and it also prevents evaporation when it's warm. So liquid water can clearly exist on the surface and has been proven by physical experiments. Now, it can be wet, have damp mud and soil and brine, and bacteria could be found under those conditions, and they could live quite well in those conditions. So another myth is that Mars has always had a thin atmosphere. Well, that's plain silly. We know that there is a rate of air loss, and obviously if air is leaking away, then it had to be thicker atmosphere in times past. Well, that's proven. And as the poles wobble around and the climate changes, the polar caps, which have a lot of carbon dioxide snow, evaporate, and it raises the air pressure. And under those conditions, water can exist much more comfortably in a broader range of temperatures. Well, Mars is in an ice age right now, and it's warming up, and we're seeing that right now. So another myth, there's very little humidity on Mars. Well, this is plain silly. We actually can tell that the relative humidity in the atmosphere is 10 times higher than the theory predicts. This is because the atmosphere is super saturated with moisture. The water vapor is actually one of the active pressure components in the atmosphere. There's so much of it. And the funny thing is, people say, well, if you were to condense all the humidity in the Martian atmosphere, it would only take a, it would make a layer a fraction of a millimeter thin. Well, first of all, this is wrong. The atmosphere is uh, loaded with moisture. But second, people say that's an indicator of how much water there is on the planet. No, if you took all the moisture out of the Earth's air uniformly, it would only be a layer about two and a half centimeters or one inch deep. And yet that doesn't tell you anything about the presence of our oceans. So the humidity in the atmosphere is not an accurate indicator of how much water there is in the reservoirs of the planet. Here's another myth. There's no precipitation on Mars. 
The Phoenix landers, you may remember, uh, the Phoenix lander went to the North Polar region, and they said, oh, well, it may snow, but it would never reach the ground. Well, how did the polar caps form? If the ice never reaches the ground, how do the polar caps form? They're covered with snow. When the Phoenix lander was lost, two years later, when they started searching for it, they found it, and its solar panels had collapsed, clearly under the load of snow and ice. Uh, it's plain stupid. How can you say that there's precipitation, but it will never reach the ground? We have obvious evidence to the contrary. Dismissed. This is taking us to color images. We get these muddy orange skies, and we don't get accurate color. Well, NASA said it's not possible to get correct color images, and yet they have three filters on the previous rovers that L4, L5, and L6 filters cover basically the red-green-blue range of the human eye. And if you put those three filters together, you can get a very nice color image. And they said, well, we don't have the, the comparative illumination scale, the relative uh, illumination scale, so we couldn't put them together properly. Well, they're doing infrared geology. They couldn't do the geology unless they had the proper calibration. If they have the proper calibration to do infrared geology, they have the proper calibration to make correct color images. They're just plain not doing it. Somebody's lying. That's very clear. And, you know, then they say things like, well, we have radiometrically correct the color. I've seen their radiometric correction, and it doesn't match the known color levels of the targets. So they're doing it wrong. So then they go on to say, well, the rover cameras don't work like the human eye. Well, duh, no camera works like the human eye. But I can go to the drugstore, and I could get one of those cheap 10 or $15 knockoff cameras and get wonderful color pictures. And sometimes I'm wondering why they didn't send one of those $15 color cameras to Mars and get the proper color. So then there are objections such as, Mars air is too thin to show a blue sky. I take real exception to that. It's not too thin to show that smoggy orange sky. But if all that dust was in the air, to color it orange, the shadows on the ground would be muddy and indistinct, like you're in a fog. The shadows are razor sharp. Any dust particles large enough to show color would not remain suspended in the Martian atmosphere because of its very thin nature, very low drag number. Those particles would fall to the ground and leave, guess what, clear skies. If you look at the filter data, the red and infrared portions, they show the sky as being almost black. The green and the blue show it glowing. Clearly, the color filters show the sky is blue. Now, on showing the fossils, some people said to me, well, alien organisms would be completely different. You wouldn't know what you're looking at. This is incorrect. Organisms are shaped by their environment. It doesn't matter that mutations are random. They're the flip of a coin. Only the ones that lead to organisms that survive will produce organisms. And the organisms will be shaped by their environment. So, oceans on ancient Mars would have, guess what, sea creatures. And they wouldn't be too different from what you see in our oceans. And why is that? It's because a fish has to be fluid dynamic in order to swim. Um, You know, it's like a bird. A bird isn't shaped like a basketball or a cube, or it wouldn't be aerodynamic to fly. So anything that lives in an ocean is going to look like an aquatic creature. Now, for some of the images I presented, somebody said, well, that's too many fossils. That many fossils in an area aren't possible. And I said, look, walk on limestone. Walk on a beach. You're crunching them. There are billions of them. 
It is not unreasonable to find that in this dried-up ocean bed on Mars that the same thing would be there. To which they say, Mars could never have had oceans. Well, that's proven false. We can see the remnants, and we can see the salts left behind when they evaporated, and we see clearly what appears to be marine fossils. Well, some people have said, well, you couldn't have life without tides. There wouldn't have been any tides on Mars because it doesn't have a moon. That's false also. There's a solar tide, and it follows the day-night cycle. There would have been tides on Mars, and there would have been normal tidal activity. Now, there are a lot more objections, but um, i got to admit, after dispensing with all of them, I, I just get worked up about it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop before I uh, lose my cool here. <laughs> I'd say the most important thing here is for me to say that what I discovered was marine fossils on Mars, and I have many, many images that come directly from NASA. And I'm going to direct you to a number of those on the site and leave links to them. And you can see for yourself, these are not altered. These are the genuine deal. And you can make your own choice, your own decision, on seeing that data. So what, you know, Dr. Levin talked about was what appeared to be bacterial action, which he can basically prove. What uh, Dr. De Gregorio talked about was desert varnish, which clearly exists on Mars, and it's caused by organisms. And what I'm talking about is marine fossils, clearly advanced life. You know, there's no question Mars had life, it had oceans, and the oceans, even though the air was very thin, the oceans acted as a surrogate atmosphere. That's where the life was. So in the meantime, we're going to go to break. Um, Eliza, please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe with Sir Charles Schultz. Don't go away. We will be right back soon. And I'm going to share some things with you that you might never have thought of. You'll come away with a different perspective. This is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. When I was a child, my first hobby, and this is between the ages of four and five, my first hobby was uh, rock hound, collecting rocks and fossils. And so my exposure to rocks and geology is not formal training, but personal experience. Uh, many of the adults around me were rock hounds. They were into geology in a big way. And they would always bring me samples. So I had every type of crystalline and non-crystalline rock you could imagine. I learned their hardnesses, sources, compositions, and chemistries at a very early age because it was fascinating to me. This is the stuff the earth was made of. And so my experience with geology, again, is not formal training, but a lot of hands-on experience, and in the field as well, looking for samples and identifying them. So my familiarity with fossils and minerals goes very deep. And one of the things that you don't generally learn from geology texts is context. Um, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. It really depends. But on seeing the first images from the Mars Exploration rovers, both Spirit and Opportunity, I saw a number of things that really stood out in my mind, and data from Viking and from Pathfinder as well. I've always been fascinated by Mars and its geology and how very Earth-like it is. So it wasn't uh, much of a surprise that when we landed the um, Spirit and Opportunity rovers, we would see unusual things. That's to be expected. That's why we're there. We're exploring. Something that is very clear is that water had to have a presence and function in the Martian environment 
And the close-ups that were shown by the microscopic uh, imagers was of smooth, rounded rock that appeared very much like dried mud. Um, the bubbles, the vesicles in the rock, were not from volcanic action, and it had mysteries in the minds of all of the NASA scientists looking at it at the time. Now, the dead giveaway was the blueberries, or cereals, as long as you think about how they would form, you could come to the conclusion that there was only one way, and it had to be something that was formed and trapped in the rock as it formed. So, we're looking at the rocks, and they're in layers, and they're soft rock, and layers of this type and persistence will only happen by emplacement through water. Now, some geologists are aware of the fact that there can be layered sedimentary rock not formed by water, but it takes very specific conditions and repetitive conditions for that to happen. These rocks were different, and the analysis showed them to be gypsum, which is placed at what is called an evaporite mineral, and this is made by the action of water. So here's what we know. They landed in an area that was under an ocean. When the ocean went away, whether it was through freezing or evaporation or drying up in some other form, all the salts that were in the water were left behind. And the soil is anywhere from 11 to 30% salt in those areas, 21% being an average. The minerals in that area are evaporite minerals formed by water processes, such as gypsum. They are sedimentary minerals formed by deposition of water. We see minerals, forces, and changes all determined by salty water. So while I'm looking at these spherules, or the blueberries as they call them, I noticed that a number of them had repetitive patterns on them. Erosion doesn't do the same job over and over again, and it doesn't make the same marks on different rocks repetitively. Furthermore, some of the spherules had patterns on them, similar to a handprint, and the larger ones had large handprints, and the smaller ones had small handprints. Now, this is a sign of growth, not erosion. And I realize I'm looking at what appears to be tide pool trash. And surely, as I'm looking, I'm seeing seashells. Now, think about this. We're looking at an area that was at the bottom of an ocean. We're looking at an area that was a seabed, and a shallow one at that. And we're looking at the chemistry and the geology, and here are things that look like seashells and urchins. Well, what conclusion would you draw? So I'm analyzing what I'm looking at, and I'm seeing symmetrical markings. I'm seeing identical markings that are in scale with the spherules they're on. Um, you know, biological growth produces this, and erosion doesn't. I'm looking at features that have five-fold and ten-fold rotational symmetry. This is something that crystals do not do, but biology does. I'm seeing identical pieces of rock with exactly the same markings over and over. Now, fossils easily explain this. Geology does not. I had an assistant working with me at the time, and she was looking at the screen, and she pointed to something and said, well, that looks like a seashell. And she was absolutely right. She found the first seashell in the Mars data. The uh, infamous crinoid image showed up, and guess what? That's an aquatic organism. Um, not long after, I found what appeared to be clearly trilobite uh, remains, and 
So on and on it went, and everything was a marine fossil. And the images are very clear, and if you go to the site, um, the talkuniverse.org page, you will see some supplementary material, many images. And, you know, you, you can't deny, even if you don't agree with my findings, there's something very, very unusual here. What's most interesting is that both rovers were turning in interesting and similar types of images. And every time they came up with something that looked truly anomalous, NASA would stop the rover, turn, and go the other way. They would never get up and analyze anything closely. How frustrating to think they spent $840 million to get those two spacecraft there. And once they arrived, anytime anything anomalous showed up, they'd drive away from it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were heading a project to do some exploration, and my employees kept turning away, I'd have somebody fired. Because there are questions we went to this planet with these rovers to answer, and no answers are emerging. Because we don't hear about somebody being fired for ignoring these anomalies, we have to assume that the word to do it comes from the top. Now, the interesting thing is, because they have different filters and different cameras, in many cases, you can capture things from more than one angle, and you can create 3D or stereo images. You don't always have the data to produce a good color image, but many times you can kind of fake it by using different parts of the spectrum. And you know, I don't like to do that, but at least you can get a very good idea of what something should look like to the human eye. And in doing so, I have generated a number of um, false color three-dimensional images, but I've also got some true color two-dimensional images, and they're astounding. They show things that you normally would never see unless you really dug into the data. And when you see things in three dimensions, you spot things that are definitely anomalous. One of them is the presence of what appear to be geysers. And you can see that there are particularly slabs of stone that are absolutely washed clean while all the stones around them are covered in um, spherules and dirt. And you ask yourself, well, why is that one stone clean? Then you start looking around the margins of the stones and you see definitely ripples in the sand and areas that appear to be washed clean by a flow of water. Now, if you look at the change in the soil over a number of days, and in many cases, the rovers will park, take some images, and then for the next three, four, five days or more, continue to take images, and you can compare one image to the last image and see what has changed over time. In this way, you can see that erosion is occurring literally overnight in many cases, and in the space of a few days. And in some cases, features appear to have been washed with water overnight. But there are definitely very clear signs of liquid water present in the area right now, not a million years ago, but right now. So the long and the short of it is this. Mars was a water world, very similar to the Earth, and it underwent the same historical changes that the Earth did due to biology, such as the great rusting. The planet is covered with rust, and that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It takes processes to make that occur. The atmosphere on Mars was always much thinner than the atmosphere on Earth. That's just a fact. It's a tiny planet with only 38% of the gravity that the Earth has. But water is an atmosphere. And you ask any whale, 
What is he living in? He's living in his atmosphere. The water, even on a thin air planet, can serve as the surrogate atmosphere, and life would exist in the water. So we're looking at the areas where the oceans on Mars did exist and dried up, and it's very clear that marine life developed there, and it looks very much like we have on Earth because life has a function, and its form and its function are tied hand in hand. And if you live in an aquatic environment, you're going to look like an aquatic organism. That's all there is to it. It's that simple. In some cases, the, the seashells are so absolutely clear that it astounds me that people even object to their presence. Again, you're looking at the bottom of an ocean that's dried up. Mars is an ice age, and it's going to be that way for a while yet. But if you were to go up into the mountains in Colorado, you would find seashells up in the hills because tectonics has moved the ocean bed, and it's now in layers in the rock over your head. And you can go uphill and find aquatic organisms, remains, seashells. Well, this is exactly the sort of thing you're finding on Mars. They're the remains of organisms that lived long ago, but their shells and their skeletons are left behind. And we see trilobites and sea urchins and, well, you know, all sorts of things. There are numerous different uh, types of seashell, and there are also uh, crinoids, uh, very clear crinoids. You can see the tentacles and the divisions in them. So, again, I don't understand why anybody would object to this. If you went to the mountains and you found sea creature remains up in the high desert on a mountain, you wouldn't go, well, that's impossible. We're not near an ocean. When you land a spacecraft on a planet such as Mars and you find what is clearly a bed of fossils, why would you object? The whole point of exploration is we don't have the answers yet. And when we arrive and we see data, we don't reject it based on our personal prejudices or beliefs. We see the chemistry and the physics certainly would have supported it. Uh, I, I'm at a loss for this, and I realized lately why. NASA has agreements with the international community that they cannot operate the rovers in areas where there's liquid water because terrestrial organisms that are on the rovers could contaminate the Martian biosphere if it were to exist. And so if they admit that there is liquid water in the areas they're in, and if they admit that those are indeed fossils, they're hamstrung. Their rover project and lander project would be dead in the water. They would not be allowed to continue the research on the surface of Mars. Well, they don't want to lose that many billions of dollars every year supporting their research and their projects. This would be a major blow to them. This isn't about scientific integrity. This is about the money and the politics. And that's the bottom line. So what I'm doing is I'm posting a large selection of very interesting fossil images on the site as supplementary material. And you can look at those pictures and they will have links to original NASA information so you can verify that this is the genuine deal. This is not something that's been photoshopped or made up or altered. These are actual pictures of alien life fossils. And they're on the next door neighbor to us. Uh, they're right on Mars. And they've been there all along. And it's very clear that these are real. These are not an illusion. And my opinion about why NASA will not agree that there is liquid water where the rovers are operating 
and that these are alien fossils is because they would have to shut their project down for fear of contaminating the Martian biosphere with terrestrial organisms. And this is not without foundation. This is, uh, it's not because of religion, it's not because of uh, worries about what people will believe if it's said that there's alien life. Those are all smokescreen. That's silly. Half of every movie we see is about alien life, so you can dismiss that. Anyway, in the meantime, we're getting pretty close to the break, and uh, after the break, uh, we will answer some user comments or questions. And the book recommendation, as you know, I have presented a couple of times. And so, with that, Eliza, please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe with Sir Charles Schultz. Don't go away. We will be right back soon. More interesting things to hear very shortly. Please stick around and look at the pictures on the site and go to the links. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. We'll return shortly. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Talk Universe will continue now. Yes, it will. So we're back to what's really on Mars, part four. And we're going to look at some of our listener questions and comments. And uh, Eliza has really been pushing me to do some uh, listener questions. So Eliza, how many questions are in the queue? There are three questions in the queue. Fantastic. Please read a listener question. In reference to our YouTube version of show number 23, entitled Free Energy, Rewind Remix left a comment. Lovely stuff. Oh, very good, very good. We have, uh, I think, all of our shows are on um, YouTube right now, and you can listen to them there and leave comments, and we're certainly getting some good ones. Well, that's great. Please read the next question. In reference to our YouTube version of show number 36, entitled The Nature of Gravity, Yanif says W against T, results required. Okay, now I would imagine that what he means is the omega versus time which is, um, th- there is a theory that, uh, there is a theory that as the universe ages, the rate of the movement of time changes, the speed of light changes. And so that's probably what he's referring to. So that's an interesting comment. So, Eliza, please read the next question. In reference to our YouTube version of show number 41, entitled The Big Bang, Joseph writes, always entertaining, informative, easy to listen to. And I'm not sure, but I think my toaster has a crush on Eliza. That's funny. This comment is about me. Uh, Yes, it is. It is indeed. And I think it's a pretty funny comment. What kind of a world is it where trans model number dating might be encouraged or allowed? (laughs) Who was the last question from? This question is from Joseph. I see. Should I uh, contact him and get an email address or a phone number for you? I don't have an opinion about that. Well, okay. How many questions are in the queue? There are no more questions in the queue, Charles. Okay, thank you. So we see that the chemistry of life exists everywhere in our solar system and actually everywhere in the universe. The materials necessary for the formation of organic compounds are in abundance throughout space. And we also see that Other than Earth, there are probably five bodies, planets, or moons 
in our solar system that could support life. And we know that organic molecules are present there. We've seen them. We've measured them. We even have samples in the form of meteorites. And comet dust particles have been collected and brought back as well. Now we look at Mars and we see what is actually a very Earth-like planet. In fact, it is the most Earth-like planet in our solar system that isn't the Earth. And it has valleys and arroyos and mountains and hills. There are clouds in the sky. There are winds. There is precipitation. There certainly is enough water in the environment. Uh, the chemistry of life is and was present there. And we see now clearly what appear to be fossil remains. So one of the things that really strikes me is that when we look at Mars, we see desert varnish. And look, this is made by living organisms. This is not a mineral phenomenon. And that much has basically been proven. And our guest on the last Mars episode, part three, pointed out that uh, desert varnish is associated with microorganisms. And I've said the same thing myself. And, and it's a fact. He's discovered a form, uh, Dr. Barry de Gregorio has discovered a form of desert varnish that he was able to date its formation and growth period because the rocks it is on were part of a construction project of a known date. And so this is something we see in the images on Mars. There is desert varnish, and desert varnish is made by microbes. So we see proof of life on Mars, even there. Dr. Gil Levin, back in 1976, found what appeared to be microbial activity in the soil, and I don't doubt that. So we have a lot of evidence for life on Mars in the past and presently. And I'll say this again, I've said this many times, if life ever existed on Mars, it still has to be there because nothing autoclaved the planet, nothing sterilized the planet. There will still be organisms there. And do our rovers pose a threat? Do our landers pose a threat? They may. Uh, just as you wouldn't take home an unknown organism and spread it around with the family and the kids, you don't know what the um, results might be. We also wouldn't take organisms from Earth and put them in a biosphere where they have no resistance to our organisms. And this is a two-way street. So consider people are trying to get to Mars right now, and if they go, they will be exposing themselves to the environment and any potential microbes that are there and they should not be allowed to return to Earth because they could bring back, well, anything, uh, any sort of a plague. Now, when we look at other planets in the solar system, we see that most of them have extremes of temperature um, and atmosphere and pressure that make life exceptionally difficult, and yet many of them have moons that have conditions that support organic molecules in their creation, and uh, Ganymede and Europa in, in orbit around Jupiter are two very good places. Um, Titan and Enceladus in orbit around Saturn are good places. Triton, uh, one of the outer moons of uh, Neptune. And, you know, even Pluto itself has apparently cryovolcanism, and that means possibly, possibly liquid water inside it. And it's because it has such a large moon so close to it, Charon, that the gravitational flexing between the two heat the interiors of both bodies slightly. So there's a source of energy, there is a source of solvents, the water, and there is a source of organic molecules. We can see the reddish color of tholin, organic uh, stuff of life. So yes, there are at least five other places in our solar system we should be looking for life, besides Earth and Mars, and it is no surprise that life will be common throughout the universe. 
What's the most common form of life we're going to find everywhere? Probably bacteria. Bacteria are exceptionally hardy. They can live under amazing conditions. And we've got an awful lot of small Mars-like worlds and small moons orbiting other planets in other solar systems. So is life common in the universe? I would have to say absolutely. It should be everywhere. Because the rules of chemistry and physics are the same throughout our whole universe. And when we start finding things that look like seashells and urchins and trilobites, and we find the remains of what appear to be organisms, we see the chemistry of oceans that have vanished, we have to ask the question, why would we deny such a body of evidence? What makes this so difficult for people to accept? What this really becomes is, what does anyone, any person or organization, have to gain from hiding the fact that life exists somewhere? It sounds more like an ideological uh, argument or problem. Um, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? What a stupid question. Let's get on with the real science. Let's look at the facts and see what we discover. And let's not turn our heads away from what we see. What can possibly be gained from hiding the evidence of life off the earth? Go to the site and look at the pictures and judge for yourself. And, and do this in full knowledge that there were oceans on Mars, and that much is admitted and proven. And there are organic chemicals everywhere in our solar system, including on Mars. And that the salts of those oceans exist now. That the conditions have at least ten times more water in the atmosphere than theory said was possible. And when you start thinking about it from this standpoint, we see sedimentary rocks. They say, well, it certainly would have been clement at times in the distant past you know what, we've got all the building blocks of life and we've got evidence of its remains. How hard is it to accept the facts? Now, it's recently been stated that there appear to be some caverns or cave environments on Mars, and it is in these places where we might actually find living remnants of some of those organisms. It wouldn't be too unusual if you think about it. There are a lot of things that live in caves on the Earth that never see the light of day, and so there could be some protected havens where fairly complex life from times past might still exist. If you think about this, there appear to be trilobite fossils on Mars, and I'll put a number of those on the supplementary materials so you can have a look at them yourself. They existed for over 210 million years in the oceans of Earth before they became extinct. And if there are still such organisms on Mars, then we have the potential to actually see living trilobites at some point. Now, it's an outside shot, but it's possible, and that alone should be an exciting enough thought to spur an effort to explore and locate these environments, and to even go and look at the fossils that do exist there today. I'm sure any number of paleontologists would give an arm and a leg to go and find remains of alien fossils. I don't think that many people would put too much ahead of themselves for the chance to go to Mars, even if it meant they had to stay there, if only to make discoveries of this magnitude, something amazing nobody has ever seen before. Now, I also want you to consider one other thing, and it is this. NASA is proposing these missions to go to other worlds in our solar system and search for life. And they're telling us, hey, we could find it. Well, you know what? They've been unable to answer the question with respect to Mars, and they've had 40 years plus to do it. What makes us think, what makes them think, that they're able to get an answer in any other case? They have very clear evidence here, and they've turned it aside. I wouldn't trust them. 
I don't believe that if they find the answer, they will tell us. We're looking at solid evidence right now, and the fact is, and I've said this before, every time the rover gets near anything that looks anomalous, not only do they fail to analyze it, they turn tail and run. So here is my statement of record on this thing. If you really want the answer, you get some company involved or some private individual with money involved, and you get NASA the heck out of the way, and you will have your answer, and you'll have it fast, and you'll be able to get reliable results. If we really want to know what's on Mars or anywhere else, don't take my word for it. Look at the data that's available, make your own decision, but get NASA out of the way and get some actual honest private individuals involved, and we'll get the answers. That's the only way progress is ever made. I've not seen governments do anything positive of any scale of magnitude for a very long time. I'm going to say something else, too, and this has been on my mind for a while. We see a lot of people claiming odd things like gears and machine parts and alien hardware. This is garbage. Mars was an extremely primitive world. The most advanced thing was no more than a fish. And most of what we see is very simple life forms like sea urchins and trilobites and sea snails. So what sort of a civilization would that be? It's basically very simple animals. No technology, no languages, no spaceships, no little green men. Get that stuff out of your head. That's like claiming going into the mountains you're going to find little green men. What's the difference? This is an environment where life developed, things live the way things live, and the conditions are very harsh. Right now the planet's in an ice age. Everything's either frozen or dead. But you know what? None of this alien claims, machinery technical parts, none of that makes any sense. The simplest explanation is this. It's a bad environment, something managed to eke out a living and develop just as it does on the earth. And we're seeing the remains of it now. Nothing shocking, nothing surprising, nothing outrageous. It's just life. And what do I want you to believe? Nothing. I want you to know. I want you to find out for yourself, ask the right questions, and get the facts. This isn't about belief. This is about knowledge. And so at the close of this part four of what's really on Mars, I bring us back to Earth with that simple statement. Make you the world a better or more beautiful place for having lived in it. We have everything we need to create everything we will ever need. And, you know, we're responsible for our lives, for our decisions, and for the well-being of many of the people around us. We need to focus on a lot of down-to-earth issues. We need to solve our problems here. But that doesn't mean we're restricted to only leaving the planet after we solve all our problems at home, because that's not possible. A lot of programs seem to be out there to help you end your ills. A lot of government assistance to fix this or fix that. The fact is, most problems start with need, or they start within us. And the only way we can solve all the problems is if everybody's on the same page. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So go to our site, send us your comments and ideas, and we'll try to get them on the air. We're um, putting a lot of interesting shows together. The next one will be, is anybody out there listening to our signals? Have our radio signals from Earth been heard? We'll look at that in detail. And Eliza, please end the show. Thank you for listening to Talk Universe. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. Please listen again next week. Be sure to listen in. The new show lineup will be on our site very shortly. Eliza, could you do something for me? How can I help you? 
What is the definition of toaster? I do not presently have a definition for that. You're gonna have a hard time knowing what this guy looks like on the blind date, you know.